You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Baum. Hi, everyone. How are you? Thanks for uh, tuning in again. This is your first time. Uh, you're in for a treat. Uh, I think so. Um, if it is your first time, I uh, ask you to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a listen. Give other guests a chance. Because you might not know them, but you might just learn something from them. I know I learn a little every day. It's therapy for me. It's free therapy. That's what it is. And hopefully it's a little therapy for you. But uh, I'll tell you what, today's guest was, uh, well, we'll get into the guest. It was extraordinary. And, you know, I was nervous about this one. I, you hear me say that occasionally. But, you know, I know Kevin, but I don't know Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, Batman, over all these years. And we did Justice League Unlimited together. But he was so open. I was nervous that he wasn't, didn't want to get personal, didn't want to get. And I'll tell you what. This is, I learned so much. I know you will too. And uh, it's heart-wrenching. Some of it is really like uh, just, some of it's beautiful. Some of it's, you know, talk about facing adversity. Um, you listen to his story and you're going to, uh, I think you're going to really not only appreciate him more, but appreciate life more, appreciate, maybe learn something from it. I, I think you will. Also, I've said it before, great guests coming up as well. Um, there's a couple that I was really excited about getting. Um, and I think they're going to be really, really swell. All my guests are amazing and they open up and I just really appreciate it. Last week, uh, Oliver Hudson. If you haven't listened to Oliver Hudson and you don't know him or whatever, listen to it. Trust me. Talk about somebody who opens up about you guys, like my, my sister, Kate Hudson's a movie star. My mom, Goldie Hawn's a movie star. Kurt Russell, my dad's a movie star. And I, at this point in his life, he was like, I'm anxious. What am I doing? I'm not. And he was just so honest about things. Meeting up with his biological father, which some people out there in the world can relate to. And check that out. And uh, if you haven't listened to Eli Roth, by the way, another one, director, even if you don't like horror, very insightful. He was the bear Jew in Inglorious Bastards. He directed Hostel, Cabin Fever. So many things. Check him out. I want to say a big thanks to, of course, all my listeners out there. Um, it means a great deal for you to tune in every week. I say it every week, but I should because you never know if there are new listeners here, and you hope there are. But uh, please subscribe. You can watch on YouTube. Uh, Ryan does a lovely job editing. Follow us on Instagram at Inside of You Podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Inside of You Pod. I believe on Twitter. I should know that by now. Um, you know, obviously I had to cancel my live podcast with Zach Levi in Texas, but that's par for the course. There's things going on in this world that are out of my control. And I think that's part of like this whole process is just sort of saying, Hey, it's out of your control. Let it go. Why are you stressed? Why are you irritable? Why are you just, you know, let it go, you know? So, uh, this past week was a little bit tough for me. Uh, I had one day where nothing worked, the internet didn't work, and these, this company's been just screwing me over. Of course, that's how you feel. Like, they're screwing me over. But, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are having problems. But uh, two guests, I had to cancel two guests right when they're about to record, which upsets me because I'm always on time. I always want to do things right. And I sometimes my friend says, uh, dude, things happen. Life happens. You just got to hope that the person you're about to talk to is cool and understands. And most people will understand. So. Thank you to my guests uh, uh, a few days ago that I uh, had to postpone. But great podcast. I did five interviews this week, this last week, and they're fantastic. And I wish I could tell you the good news. There's, there's some good news coming. I've been saying it, but uh, I'll be announcing it soon. Really excited about that. And uh, thanks to my sponsor, BetterHelp. I think uh, it's very fitting for this show. 
uh, BetterHelp Online Counseling. They didn't even ask me to say this in the beginning, but uh, I noticed that it does help people and any kind of counseling um, during these times, especially and all the time. To talk to someone is just value, so valuable. Uh, another huge shout out to my patrons. I don't know if you know what Patreon is. I talk about it all the time, but people who love the podcast, they support on the side, they pledge, they get a bunch of stuff. Uh, there's tears, there's a community. The biggest thing I've known, I do these Instagram lives, and I noticed that people have built these friendships from this community of uh, Patreon, and people keep joining, and you know, I, I keep thinking, oh, they love the podcast, and I'm thinking, well, I think they actually like each other, too. It's just, no, it's, uh, it's fantastic, and I thank you all for sticking around. And being a part of this, we do uh, Inside of Me, where they get to ask me questions. I created another character who asks the questions. It's a woman. Sometimes it's a dude. I just like to mix it up. I get bored, man. I like to be creative. There's a lot of other stuff. Shit-talking questions where they ask the guest questions and uh, extra podcast bonus app for people. Um, sometimes there's old episodes that aren't even around that we, we dig up and we give to our patrons. And there's a great community. We talk. We do YouTube lives where I play music and they have a request line. It's just for our, all the all the patrons for that one. And it's amazing. And uh, the support is unreal. So if uh, you're interested in joining the community, I definitely recommend Patreon and um, a lot of the people on there uh, that I consider friends really um, could uh, speak for themselves and they would say the, probably the same thing. I want to get into it. Is there anything else I wanted to talk about? I want, you know, I also want to thank Hint Water. Hint doesn't even ask me. They just give me these waters for a couple of years now. My buddy Paul, well, he just delivers waters and it's nice. It's like, and they don't ever ask, hey, put it on the podcast, talk about it. They don't give me money. I just love Hint Water. I just want to say Hint Water. Thanks. You get the hint? Good. Great. Let's get into the podcast. Uh, afterwards, we'll be, uh, I'll be talking about some other stuff, but uh, let's get into it. This guy is the voice of Batman for many years. I've had the, uh, uh, the luck to to work with him. The uh, he's he's a great man. He's he's he lived with Robin Williams. He's he's been around in a good way. He's just so knowledgeable and so open. I think you're gonna love the crap out of this one. Let's get inside of Kevin Conroy. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. You know, Conroy, I'm going to blame you on this. I know. It I just, know it, it just has you know, to be. Computers don't like me. I don't know what it is. I like computers. <laughs> Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Well, I'm telling you, right before we called, I was going a little... You know, I don't get... It's not so much external, just inside I get this in here in the chest and i start it's called anxiety yeah i I, you know but it's the simple things it's like why am i freaking out inside why am i getting all worried about things it just i hate when it happens i know yeah i know that's human do you do it do you still get do you ever get you seem so calm and collected right it's a really good mask isn't it (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) i've been meditating since i was 21 21 is it Something that's part of your routine every day when you wake up, or is it a... It was for decades. It was much more necessary when I was younger. I was very anxiety-ridden. I was I was really in knots inside, and um, I really needed that tool. I ran six miles every day. I did everything I could 
to release anxiety because uh, I grew up with an incredible amount of anxiety tied up inside of me. And I really had to focus for a while when I was younger to get rid of that, to get that out of my life. It's amazing that at a, at a young age, you can actually understand you knew what you, what was happening to you, right? You knew that there's something going on. That's just that I have to, I have to try and do everything I can to control it. Oh, absolutely. I was drinking too much. I was doing drugs. I was smoking a pack a day and I was having seizures. I, I had something called psychomotor epilepsy that started when I was about 14 and I'd have fits and they did all kinds of brain scans. And they said, you do not have epilepsy, but you have a, a psychological condition called long-term anxiety. And it comes from growing up in a situation of such anxiety, such tension that your, your, your nervous system has this valve that you've developed and it's giving you these seizures. And um, it was really dramatic. I mean, I once flew off my bicycle. I once fell off a roof. I would have these seizures. And, um, so I had to do everything I could to alleviate anxiety. Well, do you think obviously, I mean, obviously, I don't say obviously, but do you think it stemmed from maybe just upbringing and being around dysfunction at all? Oh, God. It was all about that. My father was a, he was a fall-down drunk, and he was a mean drunk, and he was a old-world, very imperious man. He was a child of immigrants. He grew up in um, Hell's Kitchen in New York. He was an entirely self-made man. He was he was a street kid in New York and um, a really tough one. And he was born in 1910. So it was like having a grandfather. You know, he was, he was much older. And um, he was very old world, old Irish. And um, everything had to be very formal. We were little, we had to call him sir, stuff like that. And the fights in our house growing up were just legendary. It was like growing up in um, Long Day's Journey and Tonight. I mean, it was just this Irish, drunk, crazy, fighting clan. All my older siblings were fighting with my father. And my mother was very, very much like um, Mary Tyrone in Long Day's Journey. She was very passive. She was very loving but just beaten down by this man that she'd been married to. And um, everyone got out of that house as soon as they could. All my older siblings, who were much older. And um, so at the time I got to be around 14, I was there alone. And it was insane in that house. I mean, that day, that oh. day my father was drunk every day. And my mother started drinking heavily. And... I ended up moving out of that house when I was 16 and moved in with a friend's family just so I could finish high school. And, and yet they let you? you stay there. You could not live there. It was, it was, it was, it was huh. the police were there all the time. It was crazy. It was crazy. Wow. So, so it was, it was, it was screaming. It was yelling. It was physical. It was alcohol. It was everything. Everything. My God. You know, it's kind of a classic, you know, it's not that unusual. <laughs> it is. I, well, hang on a second. Fortunately, it's not that unusual. Well, I, I, look, I talk about some dysfunction that I had. People talk about their dysfunctions, but then it always you always hear someone else's story, and you're like, "That was fine." <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen yeah, to I Kevin. <laughs> I mean, Kevin really had it bad. I feel better. 
I don't feel better. I feel horrible for you, but I just like it. You know, I talk about this all the time, but it is you. You, you see, you have, I'm sure you have friends or people that like. Oh, I actually grew up in a normal environment. My parents didn't drink. They were kind. They were loving. They're still together. And you and don't you? I sort of. I. I mean, I envy that. Oh, I am in awe of families like that. Like right. you know, like that. You know who's like that? Who? Dietrich Bader. What? A, and you could tell. I love that family. He and his wife and these two kids, they adore each oh, other. They are happy together. You go into that house and it's just functioning, loving, <laughs> warm. And you sit there and you think, this really does exist. You know, I never saw that growing up. So I love that family. They're wonderful. People. Yeah. And it's so funny because I find myself being comforted. By going over friends' houses who have families who are together, who are loving, and just going for dinner or spending. like It's me and their family. It's like Lonely Rosenbaum. Yeah. And I go there, and I think I did that as a kid. I would go to, uh, you know, the Cutters down the street, even though they were dysfunctional. But, you know, they were kind of loving, and the Eidelmans and the Shepherds. And the and I would just try to, I don't, I don't, what is that? I don't know. It's another world. But yeah, I moved in with the Emanuels, who was a, a classmate of mine in high school, just so I could finish up high school, because uh, my house was insane, completely insane. What did your family think about that, though? Were they like, okay, go, stay there, fine? Well, my mother was happy about it, because she moved out at that point, and moved in with her sister in upstate New York to get away from my father. My father... It was a very, very dark time in our lives. He had tried to kill himself, and he was committed for a while. And when he was released, he moved back into the house, and the police had told him he wasn't supposed to, and he just showed up. And so my mother and I got out. It was crazy. I mean, this is like they write books about this kind of stuff. You tell, you know, I, I never talk about this with anyone because it's just so it's so ridiculous. You think, wasn't there anyone around to protect these people? And this is, you know. The 1970s. There really wasn't. But how long the police got tired? Of, the police got tired of coming to our house. You know, it was that kind of thing. Because no one was going to kill anybody. It was just all this insanity. And um, so my mother got out. I got out. And then I got a scholarship to go to Juilliard. And I moved into New York when I was 17. And I've been supporting myself ever since. I never went back. Hang on. It says my internet connection is unstable. This is the shit I deal with constantly. So we're going to keep going. Um, okay. All right. So all the crap. And then you ended up moving. You went to Juilliard. So by, by the way, during this whole time, was your father sort of like anti-acting? No son of mine's going to be an actor. Oh, he thought it was completely insane. He couldn't understand it. He just, but he had so checked out at that point that um, he, he was, he was really at the bottom. I mean, he, tried to kill himself when I was in high school. I mean, it was just, it was very ugly. And, um, and at that time I was the only one left in the house with my mother. So I was the one sent to see him in the hospital and pick up his car, which was covered with blood. I mean, it was for a 16 year old, it was just a, a truly dark, dark, experience that i couldn't get away from fast enough so um how do you get away from that how do you didn't have any my point is he didn't have any say in what i was going to do 
especially because he wasn't going to pay for anything. I was getting a scholarship. And it's funny, John Hausman, the day I auditioned for Juilliard, I was 17, I'm auditioning on the main stage at Juilliard, and I'm doing Romeo, you know, and afterwards, John Hausman says, well, Mr. Conroy, we're, we're clearly very interested in having you come to Juilliard. And I was so excited. And he said, come up and speak to Miss Harley about your finances. No, no, no. First he said, how is it a young man from, from Westport needs financing? <laughs> and I said, well, not everyone from Westport is wealthy, A. And B, I don't have a family that will support me. And he said, oh, very, very well, very well. It's none of my business. But come up and speak to Miss Harley. Miss Harley. And there was a moat at the bottom of the stage. And the audience was actually above us. And it was like called this uh, a, a, a studio theater. And um, it was set up like an operating room where the first row, you know, was above you looking down. Right. So when you're watching performances, it was like viewing an operating room. But I was on this stage. And I grabbed a bar that was about at eye level. And I used to do uh, gymnastics in high school. And I grabbed the bar and I vaulted from the stage up into the first row without even thinking. And Hausman and Harley jumped up and said, good God, you're not insured yet. Oh, my God. And I don't know how I did it. I just vaulted. And uh, that's when they said they'd give me a scholarship. What year was that? 73. Because what year was he doing the paper chase? I remember as a kid just watching. Good it was right after that. Well, I was there before he started his acting career. Because he had been a producer and a director. He was more of an uh, impresario. Right. And he started acting really late. He started acting after that. Yeah, because then he did like a ghost story and <clears throat> all these different things. Yeah. Wow. Did your dad ever, by the way, did he ever see you perform? Yes. Did he ever hey. say, hey, you're good? I'm proud of you. No. None of that. None of that. And you wanted that. But he came to see me. Uh, I was doing Death Trap. I did the national tour, the Broadway tour. And we were playing at the uh, the Wilbur Theater in Boston. I was co-starring with Brian Bedford. And it was a big role. It was a wonderful role. And he came up to see the play. And he... Uh, He really didn't say anything. Which is the he worst. Just wanted to, he wanted to meet Brian backstage. And when, when Brian met him after the show, um, Brian was a very difficult man, very difficult, but a brilliant actor and a generous, he had a generous soul and he liked me, um, but he could be really difficult. And he, uh, the next night after my father had come, Brian um, summoned me to his dressing room, you know, because he was the star. So I went to his dressing room and he said, I'd like to talk to you about your father. And I said, oh, great. He <sighs> said, um, I sensed a lot of tension between you. And I said, yeah, there's a lot of history there. He said, he's a very unusual man. I said, yes, he's very unusual. And he said, let me give you a piece of advice. When your father dies, which he eventually will, you will never get a chance to correct that relationship. And that will haunt you for the rest of your life. 
He said, so my advice to you is do everything you can while he's alive to try and mend that bridge. Oh, my God. I Look, I know because I've, I've been there with my father. But it's so true. And I did. I ended up taking care of my father in his last years. Did, did everything. I mean, I was flying back and forth between New York and L.A. because he kept getting put in drunk wards and stuff. And I was the only one of my siblings who was doing any of this. And they'd say, why are you doing this? He was a monster. Why are you? And, I said, and I kept thinking of Brian. So I was with my father the night he died. And that's an invaluable thing to have, to know that you gave 100%, that you did everything humanly possible to save this man, to reach this man. And so I have no ghosts at all. My God. I I mean, honestly, you brought me to tears almost. I'm just like sitting here. Um, My God. That is uh... wonderful. I had an amazing moment with him on his last night because I didn't think he was going to die that night because he had, he had come close to the edge so many times. And the doctor met me in the hall. He said, Oh, we're so glad you flew in from LA. We may not make it through the night. I said, are you serious? I didn't, I thought this was just another drunk thing he said oh no his system is closing down wow i was with him and we're sitting there in the dark of this hospital room and he looked out through the hospital window into the night sky and he got this really distant stare they call the thousand yard stare right and he just shook his head and he said the great Conroy. So remorsefully, so ruefully. And I said, what was that, Dad? And he didn't look at me, just kept shaking his head and he said, the great Conroy. And I thought, dear God in heaven, this is the best lesson he's ever given me. How not to die. (laughs) You don't want to live your life so that at the last breath you have, you're thinking, I've wasted my life. Oh, my God. Which is what he was thinking. That's exactly what he was And I thought, this is an invaluable lesson. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my God. I mean, I was just tense this whole time listening. Oddly enough, it was the closest moment we'd ever had. Do you think he was was obviously talking about himself like... I'm shit. I, I, I ruined my life. That's what it was. Yes, I've wasted my life. Who did I think I was? What was I trying to prove? So inadvertently, he gave you the best advice of your life, it, it, almost on his last breath. Oh, absolutely. And you felt it. You knew it right then. Did, were you emotional? Were you brought to tears at this moment? I was. That ended up being a very emotional night. Because it was so unexpected. And um, at that point, I was the one holding the family together. I was the diplomat. I was running my father's, you know, house and his accounts for him. And uh, I had to contact all of my siblings. Which is the hardest thing to do. I had to do it with my grandma. Isn't that the worst? That, that's the worst part, having to tell each person. Well, maybe. I don't, I don't Was it? Oh, yeah. Uh, I have a brother who's mentally ill and, and, and 
uh, having to tell him was just, he fell apart. He completely fell apart. Um, How many years ago was that? I was 30. So it's, it was 86. So it's 34 years ago. And I'm feeling that you, you're feeling this like it was yesterday. It was a very visceral experience. It was a pivotal time tonight too, because I knew that I was going to take over from my brother at that point. I was going to be responsible for him from then on, which I was. And um, so it was a big transition which I had been preparing for. Did you ever call Brian and say, you know, I did it. I took your advice. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't. Isn't that terrible? No. Brian and I really did drifted apart. I learned so much from him on stage. And I also learned from him off stage, like that example. But he could be so difficult to live with um, that we didn't really get along. So... We had some famous fights on stage, actually, during the performance. <laughs> like almost these these subtle moments that only you and he knew about? Oh, no. Oh, no. Like what? Like the opening at the Kennedy Center, which is a state event, because it's part of the, you know, it's a national monument at the Kennedy Center. So people are there in, like, black tie and stuff. Right. And Brian could be such a prick on stage. He was such a diva. And Death Trap is about these two writers who are sort of dueling with each other. And there's many, many layers to the play. I don't want to get into it now. It's hard to describe. But there are points where one, one writer finds what the other writer has been writing and reads it aloud. So you're basically reading a lot of exposition that the audience has already seen because it's like a play within a play within a play. So it's very difficult to keep the audience's interest because they've already seen all this stuff. And I had the first one of these speeches. And during it, Brian became just riveted by something on the rug. And he started going down on his all fours on the rug, trying to find something. And the audience knew exactly what he was doing. And they started laughing, laughing. He was just stealing focus. And he was just being ruthless about it and totally ignoring me. And I got louder and louder, and it was driving me crazy. And then I I calmed down, and then his turn came in the next scene to do the same thing, to have to read an expository Don't tell me you got on the floor. He had learned, no. (laughs) I turned around, and there was a bookcase behind me. And I started looking for books in the bookcase, and I was taking them out and looking at them. I just couldn't look, and I couldn't find what I wanted. And he was getting louder and louder and more strident, trying to get my attention. And I was ignoring him. And the audience knew exactly what I was doing. And they were howling that I was giving him back exactly what he'd given me. And just at that moment, I was turning back to him. And he was getting ready to swat me in the head with the script. You know, we found, found a script that each of us is working on. So just as I'm turning, this script comes and bashes me in the face. And the rivet from the script grazes my eye. And I thought he had really hurt me. And I went crazy. And we're on either side of this big lawyer's partner desk. And I lunged for him. And he threw down the script and he lunged for me. And we heard Murray Gitlin, the stage manager from the wings, say, Gentlemen, gentlemen, please, this is the theater. (laughs) 
<laughs> on stage. This is the past performance. We're like, oh my God. We had to sit back in our chairs. And we were doing all of this through the lines of the play. We never stopped saying the lines of the play. So the whole thing, you know, we're doing this play and we're like, I want to kill you. And that was the subtext was, I want to kill you. And then we both sit down and we got through the scene and the playwright, Ira Levin, who also wrote Rosemary's Baby and a big playwright, had had come down from New York with his family for the Kennedy Center opening and he was in the audience. And he loved it. No. This is, I thought, I am so fired. I am never going to work in the theater again. This is my first big job after Juilliard. This is my first big break. I'm out. I'm out. They're going to blackball me. He comes to my dressing room. He says, you were brilliant. I, it was incredible. It was like watching Hamlet. Where did you find all that in my play? <laughs> so you guys, they thought it was part of it? Yeah, we kept saying the lines. We were just playing it, this this hostile anger, fury at each other. But we'd never st- broken out of character. And what did you, did he say anything afterwards like, I'm sorry? No, Brian didn't know how to say it. You know, I think if you, you probably, if you notice any similarities in someone that your, your father might have had or drinking or things, are there certain things, triggers that you're like, can't be around that person. That's something that's just, that's, that's too much for me. That's, I can't deal with that. Selfishness to the point of narcissism, I find impossible to be around. And when someone like that comes into my life, I tend to cut them out and distance myself from them. I just don't even try to deal with them because there's no cure for narcissism for that kind of selfishness um i have no patience for it it's just amazing how you could have easily went downhill and said you know poor me and sort of with your upbringing i mean a lot of people do they just go you go one way or the other right it's the hand of fit you make choices it is a choice oh absolutely i made a very conscious choice when i was 21 to stop drinking stop drugging, stop smoking. Because once I got out of that house, oddly enough, when I was 17 and I got an apartment, I was living in New York. I was, Robin Williams was my roommate. I was at Juilliard with the most amazing actors who were all much older than me. And they were such incredibly talented people. I felt so out of my league. Um, And I started drinking. You'd think after what I saw growing up, it would be the last thing I would do. But it was just like, it was like quicksand pulling me in. It was this irresistible force. And the smoking. And I just realized on my 21st birthday, I thought, it is sink or swim. You have one choice to make. You can live or you can slowly kill yourself the way your parents did. You felt that way. You felt that strongly. Like this is it. it because you were a big drinker, right? When you were drinking, it wasn't just one drink. You drank. I drank. Starting at like 17. So 21, I stopped everything. Yeah, that's amazing. That takes an incredible willpower. I've never been a drinker, but you know, it's hard for me not to have a smoke every once in a while. It's hard for me not to smoke a little pot every once in a while. Well, three times a week. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I have the demons, man. I definitely, we all do. And it's just, no, how, you know, you know, sometimes the older you get, you're just like, oh, I want to feel like I felt. 
when I was in my 20s that, you know, you just didn't care and you were indestructible and you had endless energy and you didn't feel about, you didn't think about, oh, it's going to be a 15-hour day on set. You didn't care. You're like, you didn't think about hours. You didn't even register. Yeah. And yeah. now it just seems like, how long is that going to take? How long do I have to be the, how long is it? Do you see that? Do you do that? God, of course. Yeah. But the whole aging thing is so weird because it creeps up on you. I mean, there's this wonderful old Groucho Marx line that LA is the only place in the world where you fall asleep by the pool and you wake up and you're 87. I love that <laughs> image because it's so true because there's no sense of seasons that you just turn around and suddenly you're 10 years older, 15 years older. And you think, what happened? Yeah, but life is like that too. Like think, just giving, describing that that moment at the Kennedy Center with Brian that I was describing to you. I was I was living it again. I was right in it. To me, that happened yesterday, and yet that was forty over forty years ago. Yeah, I'm older than I look. <laughs> you look great. I don't. You do look great. You can't. You have so much energy. I mean, look. You said I don't have time for narcissism. I don't have time for this. I'm living my life. Your father, when he said the great Conroy, you know what went through your mind, and you you know exactly what it meant. He's he wasted his life, and I'm not going to do that. I mean, these are all obviously they're 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 singing in my head. I could I, you know it, it really makes me think. But is it something that you have to think about almost all the time to just make sure you're living in the moment, to make sure you're going day by day and not rushing through it? Yeah, I do. I have to remind myself all the time. I hate that. I hate having to relearn a lesson that I've learned 5, 10, 20 times. You're, uh-huh. learning, you're, you're going through it again and you think, I've been here before. I knew this already. And yet I'm here again. Right. There was a wonderful book that came out, oh, I was like 40 years ago, called Prisoners of Childhood. And um, it was re-released as uh, under a different title. But it was by a psychologist who wrote that um, we spend our lives re- repeating the cycles that are established in childhood and trying to correct them. Yes. We spend our lives doing that. Because you don't you don't correct it the first time. You keep coming back to that and keep trying to make it perfect. But um, I am I'm much less anxious than I used to be. Much less. I got that down to a tolerable level. Uh, that's that's very important. Yeah. Do you? I, I know you go through this because you go to the conventions, and I've seen you at signings. We were in Ireland together in Dublin, and you know people are constantly saying, you know. For me, they're like, oh, say I am the villain of the story. Do you, do you hear, you know, I'm Batman. I want to hear that. You hear it all the time, right? So well, I'm sure it gets got, I mean, look, you love it, but you've done it so much. Do you have to remind yourself when you're getting annoyed that this is just a gift that you just have to suck it up? I mean, it's, it's got to get annoying sometimes. That doesn't get annoying because I know how lucky I am. Good. What gets annoying is when people get really intrusive. Um about something and and that that's when I have to take a breath and 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 remind myself um how lucky I am and to not react um I was at con I was at a con recently and I was sitting waiting um for a car I think to pick me up and this guy was just standing in front of me with a camera and just kept following me with the camera just wouldn't stop following me with the camera 
I said, excuse me, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm off now. <laughs> you know, I'm going home. And he wouldn't stop. And he just kept it on. And finally, I snapped him. I said, would you turn that fucking thing off? And as soon as I did it, I thought, okay, that's the moment that's going to go on on Instagram or something. You know, that's the moment that's going to Did it? Did it go on there? No, no, it never, never did. But I was so sure it would because he would just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And he got the reaction he wanted, you know, and I, and I fell into it. Um, because I just felt my space was so invaded. Right. But, um, I have such great fans. I have such incredible support from the fans that I, I am so appreciative when they come to the cons. I love going to the cons. Yeah, I do too. I think you and I, I mean, I don't think everybody loves it. You do. You're great with the fans. I've watched you. You're great. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I just, not everybody, not everybody is really, I don't, I mean, I guess I don't notice because I just want to have fun and yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's just part of me. It's just part of my personality. It's just like, I'm here. I ha- and it's exhausting. And then that's part of my personality that, even though I I like that part about me, there's many parts I don't like, but certainly when I'm on set and I'm working, I always feel like in between I'm, I'm laughing, I'm joking, I'm doing it. And I exhaust myself. Yeah. All of the other actors go to their trailers and they rest. Kevin Conroy goes and he reads a script or a book or takes a nap. Not Michael Rosenbaum. He's hanging out with the grips and the fucking uh, set design. Hey guys, here's this. Like everyone, everyone loves you. Yes, but it's torturing me. I am this hermit because I'm back in my room reading a book. Inside of you is brought to you by Neurohacker, Qualia Senolytic. Let me tell you something. If you haven't tried this, you are missing out. I just sent this to my mom. I have it. I use it. It's a product that I didn't, they weren't even my sponsor when I was using this. And I was like, wow, why do I have more focus or energy? Why do I feel better? Why do I feel different? It's because I take Qualia Synaletic, Neurohacker. Look, if someone would have told me, Ryan, that there are science-backed ingredients that could help me feel 15 years younger in a matter of months, I wouldn't have believed it. But uh, I tried quiacinolytic, and the rest is history. As we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells may cause symptoms of aging, such as aches and discomfort, slow workout recoveries, sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-aged feeling. Also known as zombie cells, they're old and worn out and not serving a useful function for our health anymore, but they could be taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. Much like pruning the yellowing and dead leaves off a plant, Qualia Senolytic helps remove those worn out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in the body. And... You just take it two days a month. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all the ingredients together. And Neurohacker Quiacinolytic has a 100-day money-back guarantee. Oh, I have, I have more energy. Uh, I feel younger. Uh, I'm more productive. I will tell you that. I'm more productive. And uh, I feel like I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more enthusiastic about my life. I definitely feel that. And uh, for me, the aches and pains are less lessened by this. So that is a real important thing for me. Help resist aging at the cellular level, folks. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com 
slash inside. Neurohacker, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R, neurohacker.com slash inside for up to $100 off and use code inside at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash inside for an extra 15% off your purchase. Inside of you is brought to you by Neurohacker. Qualia Synaletic. I just sent some of this to my mother and she's starting to notice the differences mm-hmm. in herself. And, she, and because I noticed my mother was always had brain fog and, and she couldn't think clearly. And, and, you know, and, and I, I was like, well, this stuff works for me. And what's great is I didn't even, they weren't even a sponsor when I started using this. Um, have you heard of Synaletics yet? Well, listen, it's a class of ingredients discovered less than 10 years ago and they're being called one of the biggest discoveries of our time for helping to promote healthy aging and helping to enhance your physical prime. Your life goals in your career and beyond require productivity. But let's be honest, the aging process is not our friend when it comes to endless energy and productivity. That's why I use Qualia Senolytic. As we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells may cause symptoms of aging, such as aches and discomfort, slow workout recoveries, hello, sluggish mental and physical energy, hello, associated with that middle age feeling, hello. Also known as zombie cells, they are old and worn out and not serving a useful function for our health anymore, but they could be taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. Much like pruning the yellowing and dead leaves off a plant, Qualia Senoletic helps remove those worn out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in the body. And you just take it two days a month. That's it. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. And they must believe in their product because they have a 100-day money-back guarantee. It's pretty amazing. I felt higher energies. Uh, I feel uh, more focused. Um, Younger. I have to say, because a lot of these things make me feel younger. I feel more uh, productivity happening in my life, a little more enthusiastic. Help resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Senoletic. Go to neurohacker.com slash inside for up to $100 off and use code inside at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash inside for an extra 15% off your purchase. Thanks to Neurohacker for sponsoring today's episode. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The products and statements are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, you know, here's a good question. Well, <laughs> I'm going to compliment myself before I ask it. Here's a good question. <laughs> you know, uh, no, it's not. It's it's one of those things. I mean, look at you, Juilliard, and you've done all these plays and worked with the greatest. And so, and then, who would ever thought you'd become this... Uh, Amazing, have this extensive voiceover career like that. That's like has made you famous in so many ways, right? What was the likelihood of a New York actor who primarily did classics? I worked for Joe Papp at the Public, uh, San Diego Shakespeare, Hartford Stage. I did a lot of regional theater, did a lot of theater on Broadway and off Broadway, but a classically trained actor. What were the odds of the first? animated audition he's invited to do is the animation of Batman. The first audition I went on for a voiceover. And you didn't even want to audition for that role. I wanted to audition for for Bullock. (laughs) Because I thought those are the character, the character, you know, I could be a really good character. I thought that'd be a more fun character. 
And because of the kind of roles I played, Edgar in Lear, Edmund in Lear, um, Achilles, uh, Orestes, uh, Prince Hal, all of these classic epic heroes that the one role they would want me to read for is Batman, who is of all the DC characters, of all the animated universe, he is a classic Shakespearean type of actor. His whole life drama is a Greek drama. I mean, it's so epic. It's so... His parents killed. His... Oh, right. yeah. It's, yeah. It's a Greek drama. When Bruce Timm was describing to me the character, because the only Batman I knew was the Adam West Batman from the 60s. Mm. And Bruce Timm said, no, no, no. That's not what we're doing. We lo- Everyone loves Adam West, but that's not what we're doing. <laughs> he said, no. And he, he described to me the character and the tragedy of the background. So I just put myself into, you know, just putting my imagination in the booth. I went to this place and, you know, this dark kind of broody voice. Came out. And I sort of found this character just in the audition, just improvising. And they essentially hired me on the spot. And they'd seen over 500 people. And I found out from Andrea afterwards, the casting director. Andrea Romano, who we love. That I had been recommended by a New York casting agent, Anthony Borneo, who she knew. Because she said to Anthony, I'm going crazy. I can't find a Batman. We've seen hundreds of people. And he said, well, there's this really interesting New York actor who who does classics, and he might be really interesting for you. So that's the kind of chance that wouldn't happen now. Because everything's stunt-casted now. Mm -hmm. Everything's about star-casting. They were willing to look at an actor that no one had ever heard of, but who had the right instinct for the role and brought the character to life. I honestly don't think I would probably get the role today. Um, And that's a sad thing about the way the business has evolved. Mm -hmm. But that was such a lucky moment for me because it was also the first show where they broke away from that daytime, goofy, um, broad, cartoony anima- animation that had been done while we were kids growing up. And they were willing to go to this dark, dramatic, epic, film noir, incredible scripts, full symphony score, big cast of actors. Yeah. I mean, it was like doing a movie every week. It was such a huge departure for Warner Brothers. And the only reason they did it was because Gene McCurdy wanted to do it. And Bruce Tim. Uh, wanted to do it, and Eric Rogomsky and Paul Dini, all the people that got involved were so excited about doing this, but they knew they were doing something revolutionary. It hadn't been done. And what are the odds that I would happen to be in L.A.? I was a New York actor. I happened to be in L.A. doing a pilot for a show. That's the only reason you went in. If you were not in L.A., you probably wouldn't have got this role. No, I wouldn't have gotten it. So everything about it was so... Fortuitous. It was so. It was such an odd thing that happened, and then it led to a you know, twenty nine years of being involved with this character. How soon and, did um, your life change right after you got it? How long did it take before you noticed this is this is some this is a difference? Something's happening. A long time because this was ninety one when we started recording it, and we would do it in this funky little recording studio in um, Los Feliz of the Rowena studio. And um, we weren't even on the Warner Brothers lot. So we were like this little guerrilla group of performers, you know, 
off on her own. And we didn't know what it was going to look like because, you know, you do the voices first. You don't know for six months till it comes back from the animator yeah. what it's going to look like. So for those first six months, we didn't know anything of what it was going to look like. We saw sketches, but no one had any idea it was going to be all painted on black. And it was going to be this massive artistic endeavor with this full symphony score. I didn't know that. So I was just improvising this character. Um, so it was before the internet. So you couldn't Google Kevin Conroy or Batman, you know, it was when voiceovers were still a very anonymous job and I was used to it being anonymous. And, um, I was cool with that. Who was your favorite to work with in terms of like, you have favorites, but to, to other voice actors who you just really loved their passion and they were fun and it was easy. Besides me, you who else? You are my absolute <laughs> favoriteest, favoriteest voice. <laughs> I didn't mean me. I mean, like, even like in the early 90s, I mean, you were working with like Hamill, right? To be honest, Hamill. So Absolutely. much fun, right? Hands down. You know this. Just a brilliant crazy complicated guy He's and lovable as hell generous no ego gets in the way yeah loves other actors one of my favorite images of mark is looking over at him and seeing him like watching the other kids we're all recording together and he's in the booth and i'm looking at him he's watching another actor perform and he's like this he looked like a little kid looking in a candy candy store he's like excited this big and i thought that's that's Hamill. He so loves actors. That's so cool because most people don't do that, right? Most people are going, "Oh yeah, come on, yeah, well it's my turn or something." Yeah. And and they're, he's they're yeah, you're, he's cheering them on. It's just it's a good thing to to do to, to to support your other actors to cheer them on. You know, it's the right instinct to have because he knows that the better I am, the better he'll be. Because acting is reacting. Yeah. If you're getting a great performance, you have so much more to give, to respond to and to give to. And will, it will draw out of you. But if you're working with a piece of wood, you know, someone who's giving you nothing, it's it's a hundred times harder. You know that. Is that why you called me wood? Rosenwood? Woody. That's why we call you Woody. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, Michael. You are anything but wood. Well, I don't know. You know, when you did the, uh, when you did Batwoman, which was recent for the infinite universe, infinite, uh, what is it? Crisis on infinite earth. Crisis on infinite earth. When they called you and said, Kevin, live action, we want you to be Batman. He's a bad, bad Batman on this world and in, in this universe is at first were you thinking, fuck no, no. Immediately, what's the first thought that came to you? No, no thanks. Well, they didn't tell me anything about the Batman. They just said he was the Batman in the future. He was old Bruce Wayne. And I said, you mean like in Batman Beyond, old Bruce Wayne? They said, well, no, he's not 80, but he's he's older, and he's in bad shape. And, um, and you're like, thanks? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? Hey, man. <laughs> Um, they don't, you know, they're so guarded with their scripts, the studios, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, they don't give them out. So they didn't give me anything. I got the script basically when I was about to get on a plane to fly to Vancouver to do the show. I hadn't seen anything. But you said yes. And I said yes, because I was so 
excited to do something on camera again. I was so excited. How long it had been? 25 years. 25 years. Is that sort of by choice or did you, did you, were you always pursuing that or did you just kind of say, eh, I'm doing this. I love my life. I'll do plays. I'm not interested really in that. Or was it something like, fuck, come on. I got a little bit older. Uh, roles got more fewer. And um, I moved back to New York because uh, I had been living in LA for a while. Uh, because as I said, I, I inherited a brother that I took care of. So um, he lived in Connecticut. And um, so I had to be near him. So that meant doing more theater. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't get any on-camera work after that. It just stopped. So I started doing more and more voice work. All right. So when you suit up as Batman and you're standing there on set, live action, are you nervous? Oh, I was nervous. Are you feeling things you haven't felt in a long time? Oh, yeah. Well, what was weird about it also was they had that exoskeleton. Did you see it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in this suit of armor, sort of, that was a external spine. Right. Because his back had been broken by Superman. And I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> so this was full of surprises. I didn't know I was going to try and kill Supergirl. Um, he was dark. He was dark. Didn't you kill Superman fans, on that on that universe? Didn't you kill Superman? Yeah. The fans were not happy about it. They didn't like seeing that version of Bruce Wayne. But they liked seeing you. But for me, it was fun. It was a lot of fun to sort of stretch my acting chops a little bit. Do you want to do it again? Are you ready to I go? I would love to. I would love to. Yeah. The producer was great. The, the cast, uh, Ruby Rose, everybody uh, was fantastic wonderful to work with but they do like a movie a week yeah. it's a massive undertaking mm-hmm. quickly quickly you know we didn't really talk about robin williams but you know you roomed with robin williams you almost roomed with christopher reed it was too expensive with chris was chris uh, you know I, I met him an unbelievable man i mean a genuinely real superman he was an angel do you <sighs> and you almost roomed with him but it was too expensive he was rich did i tell you that <laughs> no, i think i read it you read it yeah where do people find this stuff out? I don't tell anyone this stuff. Well, obviously it's true. Everything you I read is true. I hear this stuff in interviews. People tell me things about my career or my life, and I think, I never told anyone that. How did you know? Well, it just you said it was more. It was a little expensive, so that's why you couldn't room with them or something. Like yeah. That. That's all it was. I was. Oh, I so wanted that apartment. It was a it was a uh, floor through of a loft in Soho in 73. And it was something like, I think it was like 700 a month or something or 800 and it would have been 400 each and that was just way 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 out of my league i ended up getting a room in a rooming house for 150 a month can you believe that on the west side of manhattan that was my first apartment 150 a month. wow but um but i couldn't there was no way i could swing it but i so wanted to because he was an upperclassman and he was really cool and you know he was part of the whole juilliard did he ask room. you to be his room to be his roommate um, I think he just made put it on the bulletin board that he was looking for a roommate or something. Right. But when I saw the floor through of this loft and <laughs> these sliding glass doors, I remember it was so New York downtown dream apartment. I thought, oh, this would be so cool to have. But there was no way I was financially going to do it. So, um, so Robin and I ended up um, splitting an apartment with with a couple of other actors. Um, so you lived and breathed like the same 
I mean, you guys were eating together. Were you hanging out together, you and Robin? You were all working together. We were all working together. We were living together. I was 17. I was 18, I guess, when I moved in with Robin. And he had already been through college. So he was like 22 or 23. And five years doesn't make a lot of difference between 40 and 45. But between 18 and 23, it's almost like a different generation. It is, yeah. I was so much younger than him um, in terms of life experience. I mean, he was going, he was doing stand-up mine on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum. That's where he would go on weekends to make money. I would have been petrified to do that at that that point in my life. I I, I just couldn't do that. Um, And he was doing these um, performances during, in school of these characters. He was a great, great, great character actor. As you saw in like Mrs. Doubtfire and Moscow on the Hudson. Um, But that was really his strong, his strength was character work. And he would create these characters at the age of 23. He did like an 85 year old man. And it was totally convincing. He was lost in that man. I also always imagine him, someone like me at the time, probably running around the house naked, doing goofy things, making everyone laugh. Was he like that? Cause I remember I heard like on Mork and Mindy, he was always naked, walking around, opening his robe. It was just a different time. It wasn't, he wasn't trying to be a perv. He was just trying to be a fun, stupid clown. You yeah. know, Yeah, he was a clown. The thing about Robin that was a little uh, difficult to live with is it, it never turned off. Never. He was always what you saw. That was not um, something that he turned on. It was just the on switch was always on. Mm. Um, and in the middle of the night, you'd wake up and you'd hear voices coming from his bedroom. And there'd be different characters in there. Like the whole family was in there. But it was just Robin. And he was just having these conversations with these characters. He couldn't turn it off. And that got to be hard to live with. Do you think that was hard for him too? He knew it? Yes. Yes. Um, I think the reason he couldn't turn it off was because he was much more comfortable in that skin than he was in his own skin. It was hard for Robin to just be Robin. I found. There was one night he he left Juilliard early because of a very, very um, dramatic breakup uh, with a girlfriend in California, and he ended up leaving. And he would have these five-hour phone calls with her in the middle of the night. And that was back when you were paying, you know, Ma Bell by the minute. <laughs> So this was this was insane what was going on. It was really insane. And the night that she split up with him, he had a meltdown. And I saw all of that performance bravado manic energy melt. And he became this shaking, keening child. This sound was coming out of him that was like, the only word I can think of is keening from the Irish plays. Um, And all I could do was hold him. And just hold him. There was nothing I could say. He was shaking. And I realized he was losing control. 
And I thought, this is the closest I've ever seen him be honest, be him. He wasn't performing. And I was holding him like you would your son. And um, we just, I was afraid to let go. So for what happened, eventually put him to bed. But that was the most intimate moment we ever had, the most honest moment we ever had. And we never spoke of it after that because I think he was embarrassed. I could see that because everybody, every time you see him, he was always on, always, always on. And that was a moment where you're like, he, did, he doesn't have control right now. This is the first time in his life. And it was nice that you were there for him. All right, this is really quick. This is the end. This is, by the way, this is, to me, this is one of the most extraordinary interviews I've had. I, 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 I no, no, it is because you have touched me and you have made me really think. And um, your stories, I am so I'm captivated by them. I could I could see these these certain moments in your life, whether it's Robin or whether it's your father or whether it's the the play when you're having a fight with Brian or <laughs> the, the profound thing he said or when you first got Batman. It's for the first time I think that I I'm really like. I'm so lost in it that I feel like maybe this is my true first episode of where I feel oh. like I'm really inside of someone. So thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. These are, it's thank called shit talking questions. These are just my patrons or patrons. They, they, they I, there's a thing called Patreon and they get to ask questions. So this is spitfire. You just hammer them out. Ashley G would you, well, this is easy. Would you do more live action roles like the crossover or, uh, or uh, just stick to a lot of voice, uh, mostly voiceover acting? Oh, no, I would love to do more live action. I would love it. Ryan C, inspirations did you use for voicing Batman? Now, you talk about, you know, Shakespeare and things like that, but what were your real inspirations? Did you, was it was just kind of, kind of off the cuff? It was so off the cuff. It really was. It was just, but in terms of inspiration for a lot of the role, um, because Bruce Wayne's issues are with his parents. They're unresolved issues. And I have to say, I have gone back to moments um, in my childhood with especially my father, who I still have a lot of emotion for. Um, it was a much darker moment with my father when I was about 16 where he tried to kill himself and I was the one who was sent to um, identify him and talk to the police and pick up his car and stuff. And um, it was a very emotional night for me. Very, very emotional. It took me a long time to get past that. Um, it was very bloody. And um, I've, I've, I've gone there periodically in recordings. In fact, I did at one point, Andrea stopped the recording. And she came into the booth. You know she doesn't do that. No. <laughs> she put her arms around me. And she said, I don't know where you just went, but it was unbelievable. Are you okay? Because I was just, I was just weeping. Wow. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. She said, I don't think so. <laughs> she said, let's take a break, everybody. You know Andrea doesn't uh, ever do that. When she loves you, it doesn't matter... I mean, I just, I have always felt that with her that I could call her right now and her and Rogerio would just be there in a second. You know, they've come to Thanksgiving dinners and people are like, who are these? These this Andre and Rogerio? Who the fuck do you think it is? But that's that's amazing. And I think that a, the, a lot of most of the great actors, probably <clears throat> the great actors 
have something to, you know, maybe that's why we had such dysfunction. If we didn't, if we didn't have things in our life that happened, you wouldn't have gotten Batman. You wouldn't have been able to emote all these things. But maybe on the flip side, you would have had a really healthy, happy, fun childhood, and you would have worked as a teacher in uh, fucking uh, Westbury, exactly. and everything would have exactly. been fine. That would be, nice, be a pretty nice trade-off, actually. You know, and I think that, too. I'm like, you know, Lex Luthor, oh, my God, you know, and I've certainly tapped into a lot of dad stuff with John Glover, who you worked with, who we love, and you tap in. And when you can tap in, it is something special and something really hard sometimes and it just brings out well, a lot I have done so many shows together through the years first thing we did was a kennedy miniseries i played uh, teddy kennedy and he played one of the family um extended family people it was with uh, uh it was a huge cast for the bbc and the cbs big miniseries martin sheehan john shea and blair brown it was a great cast and then we did uh, the george washington miniseries with uh, another massive cast and then we did uh, the production of um, Measure for Measure, uh, Much Ado, at um, San Diego Shakespeare Festival. And then Lear, he played Edgar, and I played Edmund. And um, so we've, you know, and then, of course, all the Batman stuff. I've known John for like 40 years. What He's crazy. Oh, uh, all right. Uh, Stephanie, besides Batman, what other roles would you uh, want to pursue? Where do you start? I'd love to play everything. Um, oh, God. I, don't, I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, you know that. Actors want to do everything. I, I had the most wonderful thing happen recently. Uh, Paul Dini and uh, Alan Burnett have started doing a new uh, in, incarnation of Batman the Animated Series comic books. They've come out with a new series of comic books. And um, they asked me to do a live reading um, of the first issue. Didn't you just do that? I just did it. Yeah. I said, well, which character? And they said, well, would you do like a reading of all the characters? And I said, oh my God, would I love that? I would love that. So I did the cover to cover reading of it, playing all the characters. It was so much fun. Wow. It was like an actor playground. It was so much fun. That's glorious. <laughs> Dulcie Bader, Dietrich's, Dietrich's wife, um, to sent me an email after that and she said we really love your drunk socialite she was great (laughs) (laughs) uh roxy who was influential in your life your choice to become an actor maybe that's two questions maybe it's one it's an interesting story when i switched from catholic schools which i had gone to as a kid to public schools because we moved to a different town they didn't have a catholic school i was very um as I said earlier, I was a very uptight kid. I was very, I was a nuts, basically because of my home, but also because of the school. I mean, we had, you know, it was old, old school Catholic where you wear a, you know, a, a uniform every day. You do everything to clickers in the hallway. It was very nuns in full habits. It was very old school, mass every morning. And um, I suddenly was thrown into this crazy public school. And I, couldn't adjust. I, I could not adjust. I could not function. I didn't have a function. And they didn't know what to do with me. They thought there might be something wrong with me. And they were suggesting my parents send me to um, some kind of remedial school because they thought there was something wrong with me. And this English teacher assigned us Julius Caesar. This is in seventh grade. 
And I went home and I'd never seen a play. I'd never read a play. I didn't know anything about the theater. I read it. I sat down. It was like I understood what Shakespeare was saying. I just got it. I'd never even seen Shakespeare. I'd never seen iambic pentometer. It was weird. That's weird because I, yeah. And I came in the next day and I was exploding ready to talk about And I came in with all this energy. She said, wait, 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 wait. She said, um, why don't you come to my last period class? It's a, it's an advanced placement class. I want you to get involved in that conversation. So I came to her last class and I was like taking over the room. No, Brutus was saying this. And then don't you know what this means? And the, and she said, I want you to come with me. And she took me to the guidance counselor. She said, I am going to suggest we put him in all advanced placement classes. I think we have not understood this yet. And I also want you to audition for the school play. Her name was Joyce Wilkes. She was an English teacher. Joyce Welsh? Joyce Wilkes. Wilkes. She saved my life. She saw something in me that no one else had seen. And she took that day, that moment, and said, we're putting you in different classes, and we're putting you in the school play. And I ended up getting the lead of the play, Our Town. And then I got, then I ended up doing all the plays. And then it just sort of took over my life. I got on a stage, and where most kids who are 12 get stage fright, freeze, I suddenly... All my nervous energy, all my tension, all my anxiety that I felt in my home melted away. And I felt so at home. Wow. In that warm glow that comes on you on stage, I felt so liberated. Theater saved you. It literally saved me. And I still feel that way when I get on a stage. I am so much more comfortable on a stage than I am off a stage. Off stage, I'm more circumspect and more guarded, much more guarded. But on stage, I just, I can do anything. I found that when I was 12. What are the chances of that happening? What were the chances of my meeting that, that, that wonderful teacher? Think about things. Think about that. Think about what are the odds that you're there for pilot season and you just go and read for Batman. Look at the odds of all the, what are the odds? At that moment, Brian said, you know what? This is advice I'll give you. The one piece of advice you took from someone who was kind of volatile and you didn't really, you know, you loved him, but you didn't really, you know. Yeah. And these moments, in a way, they get you through. They help you. These little, he gave you that one moment, which was so huge in your life. It resonated. For my whole life. Yeah, and someone saw Mrs. Wilkes. It was Mrs. Uh, you know, Mrs. Johnson, who was Mrs. Paternoster, or Mrs. Meyer, or the few people, or the one casting director who believed in me. It's that one, those very few people which can change the, the course of how things go with your life. I mean, it's just I- I- incredible. Isn't that amazing? It really I is. come up to me at the Chicago Comic Con. I've never forgotten this. And you've had this happen. She just said, can I hug you? I really have to hug you. She said, you mean so much to me. I said, of course. And I gave her a hug, and I was figuring, you know, it was just a fan hug. And she started to cry, getting really emotional. And I said, it's okay, it's okay. I said, it's, it's, she said, no, you don't understand what you did for me. She said, I, I grew up in the projects on the south side of Chicago. And 
every kid I knew growing up is either in jail, dead, or on drugs. She said, I got out because you were there for me every afternoon because my parents were working two and three jobs every day. They were not home. They were too busy trying to make money. And you were the safe space for me every day. And I learned so much from you. And she was putting that all into me, but it was Batman. It was the character. Yeah, of course. It was the show right. that we did. As an actor, you think, oh my God, the effect that you can have on someone is such a blessing. Because you know, you're so involved with doing the role, getting the role, performing the role. You tend to forget what effect it's having on someone. And how something you do might save a child's life. Like that teacher saved my life. Yeah. As far as she was concerned, she was just doing her job that day. Or Brian, when he gave me that bit of advice, he was just, you know, tossing off a pearl of wisdom. He didn't know it would resonate with me for the rest of my life. We, we, we can all have such a profound effect on each other when we don't know it. Yeah. That's why you always have to resist that impulse to be short with someone. You know what I mean? To let your impatience get the better of you. Yeah. Because we're human. We all get impatient. Sure. You know? But you can't. You can't. Yeah, and, and it took a long time for me. Not a, not a long time, but I didn't. I was appreciative. I was grateful. But there was a moment where I just go like, how could my performance... Well, how could something I've done as an actor help someone in their life? That doesn't make any sense. I'm just a show. It's just, it's just, you watch it and you, and so I didn't, I couldn't understand it. But then slowly when people who, you know, soldiers said, Hey, our Paul platoon in Iraq, we had the DVDs of Smallville and that's all we used to watch. And it got us through and you don't understand. Or someone says, Hey, my dad, you know, that's all we had was our Tuesday night Smallville, and you know, he died. He died of cancer, but that's that was our moment. And then I start to think about it, and it gives me goosebumps. Like, wow, we do have an impact. Oh yeah. And 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 by the way, and it's when you know it, and you you can do more. Well, if this has an impact, what else can I do to help? Because yeah. you can, you could do. We just did a El Mays thing for uh, Ronald McDonald House. Tom, Kristen, and I got together and raised a bunch of money for a just because we were on a show. If it's that easy, keep it coming. Exactly. <laughs> you know? I did a series called Tour of Duty. Oh, yeah. It was a great show. Mm -hmm. Captain of the Plume. It was the first Vietnam show on TV. And it really resonated with the Vietnam vets. And I would, uh, because I was the captain, I was the one who at the beginning of the episode would tell everyone what to do. And at the end of the episode would say, good work, guys. <laughs> I wasn't in the middle of the shows, right? So I had a lot of downtime. So I would take advantage of that. And I would go do appearances for the VVA around the country at different centers. And the experience of being in these centers with these guys who were devoted to the show. There was one, it was either in Iowa I were in Nebraska and a guy they were having a rap session 
which they organized because I was going to be there. And we all talked about how the show was affecting them, um, with their experiences from the war. Um, and it was just a, a, a talk. And this guy came in. And I saw everyone react when he came in. I wondered what the reaction was. And he just sat in the circle. And then he suddenly started saying, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what it was like. You don't know what I saw. I tried to stop him. I tried to stop him. And he just was back somewhere else. And one guy put his arm around his back. And then another guy put his arm around his back. And then I got up and started. And we ended up making this huge cocoon around this guy who started wailing, wailing and broke down. And then the organizer, the, the guy who ran the, v, the Vietnam Center there, the, the, the vet center, took him aside with a group and he came back to me and he said, we've been trying to reach that guy for years. We could never get him to come in. We knew about it. And he must have heard about your being here today. And that was a major breakthrough for him. No one's ever been able to reach him. And I thought, the effect that the performances we do can have on people yeah. is so extraordinary. It's, it's so humbling. Yeah, it's, and it's also, what I gather from that is, I don't know what I would have done, and it's like, at least I, I did something that does can have an effect and does have an effect, and it, it's nice because I never thought I'd have an effect on anybody's life. So it sure is, uh, look, this is this has been extraordinary. I've learned so much from you. And I, I told you, I go, no, Kevin, 45 minutes an hour. That's all I need. And then I just can't stop. I, I can't fucking stop talking to you. I, I, I look, I, I love this. And I know people are going to, they're going to go crazy because it's just real and visceral. And, and that's what the listeners want. They don't, it's not just a show where like, Hey man, so tell me how you partied with so it's, it's, it's become this just kind of like how you get through life and it helps people out there. You'd be surprised by your story will help so many people just about your dad relating to that or alcoholism or whatever it is. It is, um, I really appreciate you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Were you worried? Were you like, oh, shit, Rosenbaum. What's he going to ask me? <laughs> what is this? Beautiful house, by the way. Thank you. What if it's a yeah. set? All right, break it down. Let's break it down. The interview's, <laughs> interview's over. <laughs> hey, Kevin, thank you for allowing me to be inside of you. That's what we say at the end of these interviews. Thank and uh, I wish you the best, and uh, I can't wait to see you again. And uh, I'll keep in touch. I'll keep bugging okay, you. Okay, great. See you soon. Beautiful man. Honestly, I I, I, I was going to get emotional a few times when he talks about his dad. That that moment with his father is just incredible. And the guy that was a kind of problem working with, and he gets this advice. It's amazing that you could even get advice from people you don't like, or maybe he didn't say you didn't like him, but people that you might at the time. It's uh, it's hard to work with. It's hard to do. You know. Um, Got to look at the bright side of things, I suppose. You just you just do. Shout out to the patrons. Great episodes coming up. I told you some big big news coming, and I can't wait to announce it. It's just a it's a really cool thing, and uh, I hope it uh, 
I hope it, it should be a great thing. And uh, I just want to say thank you again for all the support and love. And I know it's, uh, I, I, I don't get political. Sometimes I, I mention things, but I, I don't do that. I think you want to get away from that. And uh, if, you know, there's always that fear. People are going to leave if you talk political. Well, you know, no one wants to hear politics. I get it. You know, we are going, Rob Danson and I, um, thank you for watching our stages and we're playing music and we're always looking for new covers and playing originals and we'll be doing one in a couple of weeks. So look for that on my Instagram. Uh, another virtual convention coming out. I'm on Cameo. If anybody wants a Cameo, got me. got to whore yourself out a little bit. I mean, you, I'm out there. This is what I'm doing. I'm at home like you guys. You got to figure things to entertain, things to do to keep your spirits up, keep them busy. I've had a lot of problems with my dog. Um, Irv has had a lot of problems, and I've taken him to the vet probably, I don't know, 10 to 15 vets in the last couple of weeks, and uh, from surgeons to the and uh, we're figuring it out. And then I realized one of my friends said, do you think maybe he's just getting old? And I go, no, don't you dare. Don't. He is old. He's getting old. You know? And um, I get upset. I'm like, you know, I'm like, come on, buddy. You get, what am I? What am I? I think he's going to all of a sudden rip off his fur and it's a big super S in the middle. And he's going to like, I was kidding. Here I am. He's old, man. I got to just uh, got to accept that. And I got to give him the best life he can have. And, um, you know, I just bought this thing to help him get into the car. You know, the, uh, it's a pet loader. So called pet loader. It's just like these little stairs. They just hold the, you know, it's like a briefcase, but it, un, you know, undoes, undoes itself. I can't, it just, when you open it up, uh, they're like little stairs into the truck and, um, it helps them. <clears throat> and, uh, everybody just loves that dog, including me. I think that's what makes me the most sad is that, uh, you know, when that time comes, I think everybody knows Irv. All my friends, my celebrity friends, my fans, my listeners, my fr everybody, my family, it's Irv. And I just lost my grandfather in November, and now I've got this old Irv dog, you know, trying to uh, – I hope he doesn't understand what I'm saying. For some reason, I think he gets it. He's like, dude, come on, man. I'm in the other room. Shout out to my Uncle Warren, who has the pet show. Go to Warren Eckstein. If you want to listen to some good stuff, if you have any pet problems, he's amazing. Um, I've been watching this show alone. Not alone. Well, I am alone watching a show called Alone on History Channel. I just love it. I started with episode six, The Arctic, and I fell in love with it. And um, let's just say I loved it so much that I was emotional and I got a hold of the winner and said, you got to be in the podcast. And they said, sure. So the winner of season, season six alone is going to be on the podcast soon. I'm very excited about that. Talk about someone facing adversity. Uh, all right. Let me give the shout outs to Patreon. Thank you so much, Ryan. Cue that music, baby. How about a little left on Laurel? Take him out, man. How about a little bit of, uh, I don't know, whatever you want, man. Yeah, that one, Ryan. That's good stuff. Thank you guys again for listening to the podcast. I'm telling you. Please tell everybody you know. Make them subscribe. Do all that stuff. Without you, uh, I'm not here. And I like to be here. This has become my sort of, I don't know, it's my escape talking to you guys. I'm like Grizzly Man. Remember Grizzly Man? He recorded all this stuff with the bears. And, oh, then he gets killed by the bears at the end. Yeah, let's not refer to that. Patreons, Nancy D, Leah S, Trisha F, Sarah V, Little Lisa Yukiko. Jill E, Brian H, Lauren G, Nico P, Barry I, Angelina G, Lee, Robin S, Jerry W, Emily K, Bob B, Robert B, Jason W, Stephen J, Kristen K, Amelia O, Allison L, Tom N, Jess J, 
Lucas M. Raj, Joshua D., Emily S., CJP, Samantha M., Hamza B., Jennifer N., Stacy B., Carly T., Jennifer S., Janelle B., Tabitha 272, Kimberly E., Crystal H., Mike E., Marissa N., Ramira, Beth B., Chris F., Sarah F., getting in sexy voice now, Chad W., Leanne P., Jackie P., Rodrigo S., Rachin. Ray A, Maya P, Megan D, Jennifer C, Maddie S, Tiffany I, Kendrick F, Ashley E, Margie M, Thomas T, Matt W, Belinda N, Benjamin R, Lisa J, Kevin V, Robert S, Nicole M, Amber F, James R, Chris H. You guys are amazing. All my patrons are amazing. And these guys go above and beyond. Uh, top tiers. Thank you, top tiers, for uh, keeping the show alive. And... Um, you know, I appreciate you. I got some new merch coming uh, as well. Um, so inside of you store, we've got great stuff. I just sold out of autographed mugs. If you want an autographed mug, they're, they're available. They're coming in the mail any day, but they'll, we'll probably go through those pretty quickly. They uh, they went through quickly. Uh, also, I got some other items and telling you guys on Patreon, um, the top tiers, uh, you'll be getting some of these products, you know, because there's merch boxes the top tiers you'll be getting these things so you don't have to get them i'm just giving you a heads up so guys thank you for allowing me to be inside each and every one of you spread the word and uh thanks for tuning in i hope you continue to do so i'm here if you are so thanks Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.